You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good evening, everybody. Robert Carrillo here at Metro Vision Studio. And it's Wednesday night, and we're all together. And it's great to be together. It's great to have uh, everybody here. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for desiring to grow and to be your best for God. Uh, and thank you for following Jesus and encouraging each other. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, go to God in prayer. We, we've got a, a really special evening planned tonight, and I think we'll get a lot out of it. Um, the title of the class is Grace and Race Relationships. And uh, But let's start out with going to God in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love and your grace with each of us, God. Thank you for how patient you have been with us. Thank you for how kind you've been with all of us. Help us to be that way with each other, God. Help us to really love one another, to be patient, to be kind, to be able to uh, just help each other and carry each other's burdens. God, I know that uh, so much is happening in the world and, and we're all being tested. Father, help us not to fail the test. Help us to to uh, stay close to you and get through these difficult times coming out more like Jesus and with a deeper and greater love than ever before. God, we love you. We praise you. Please bless tonight's study. Help us to uh, open our hearts and minds to what we can learn and how to be better people. For you, God, so that we can be a light to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So good to be with you guys. Uh, we're going to have a, a special lesson. Um, I'm actually just going to do the intro. Then the lesson will be given. I'll tell you by who in a minute. And then uh, uh, Reese and uh, Jacob will be closing us out with some really cool announcements. So, uh, so grace and race relationships. So we'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts from form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So, you know, we, we, we all know this scripture pretty well. You know, we use it anytime where we're talking about unity. We're talking about not being divided. We're talking about being one. Um, of course, that theme of being one, this is the very theme that Jesus prayed about the night before he was crucified, that we would all be one just as he and the Father are one. And so God calls us to be unified. Here's the thing is, that is not an easy command. That is not an easy task to fulfill. Um, not when you have a room full of sinners. And that's basically what the church is. You know, we've got egos, we got selfishness, we got pride, we got materialism, we got fear, we got defensiveness. We got all this going on inside the church. We're not even talking about the world. Forget the world. I'm talking just what's happening in the church. And yet we have to learn how to rise above that and love one another to the point that we actually are like one and that we be of one mind, heart, and soul. You know, right at the beginning of, of the Corinthian letter, he says, let there be no divisions among you that we should think and feel the same. You know, and I realized the longer I've been around, the more I realize what a miracle that is. Only in the kingdom of God and only in God. And and that 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 effort to be one is layered. You can be one 
at a very superficial level, if you're on a sports team and you're trying to win a game and you can play as one, but that doesn't mean your souls are bound as one or that your hearts are one or that your dreams are one. It just means that you work together at a point. You can be one at work and, you know, because you have a continual objective that you're trying to achieve, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your hearts are bound and that you've resolved issues and all that kind of thing. There are layers to this. And Jesus was very specific. He said, as he and the Father are one, that means perfectly one, completely united, which means that we as people have to talk about things. That when we wrong each other, we have to apologize and we have to forgive each other. That when we feel hurt, we have to be able to express that and not be shut down because of it or not be dismissed. Or that when we get dismissed, we have to be able to express that and get resolved with one another. And that is no easy thing. I think right now we're being very challenged in this area. You know, that, that how deep is our love? You know, I think the Bee Gees sang a song about that. But in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. The truth is, the easiest thing would be just say, you know what? Forget you people. I'm going to go be with people who look like me, eat like me, make their rights like me, speak my language, and, and that I get along with. That's the easy thing to do. But to sit down and really love one another enough to talk about things, share things, ask questions, and want to know the answers, and take a special interest in each other, even to listening to each other's hurts and bitterness and anger and frustration, that's a level of love. The world has no idea what to do with that kind of love or how to achieve that. That's the kind of love that comes from God. That's the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. That kind of commitment towards one another. And it's the opposite of the I don't need you thing. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable and treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. With it, if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So the challenge we're given, and the truth is it's a great challenge. It's a wonderful challenge to be able to be completely one with somebody, no matter what the differences we have, is to take an interest in each other and to share each other's pain and and hurts even. And that if one part suffers, we all suffer. We're going through a very particular time in history in our world where racism is is being challenged at a whole new level. Really, you know, it should have been challenged long ago at this level. But it is being challenged at a level. And is it complete and perfect? No. But we're at a time where we're beginning a dialogue that's very important to achieve this kind of unity and to really be able to love each other. 
But it's a scary dialogue because that means we have to not judge each other. We can't just, oh, that person's just angry. I don't want to hear them. Or that person's just bitter. Or It has to be a safe dialogue where we can actually share each other's hearts and we're not judging each other. We can't say, well, that was a stupid question. Or why would you say that? Or do you realize how ignorant that question is? Maybe there, well, not maybe. <laughs> There's ignorance out there. There's misunderstandings out there. There's fear out there. There's anger out there. There's hurt out there. And we have to be able to sit down and, and talk to each other and hear it and work it out and love each other and forgive each other where that's necessary, support each other where that's necessary, be patient with each other where that's necessary, but be there for each other so that we can be one and not be afraid to go there even and have these discussions. But we've got to not judge one another because that will shut down the dialogue. And that judgment can go in many different directions. We just can't do that. It's got to be a safe place to share. And and even to share disparity. Even that. Because that's what some feel. Or to share frustration. And that's what some feel. Or share defensiveness. And that's what some feel. And get through it. And learn from one another. Because when one part suffers, we all suffer. So tonight we have a very special speaker. Uh, her name is Jamila Mishner. She is a professor at Cornell University. Michelle and I know her. She became Christian in our campus ministry in, in New Jersey. She's a Princeton student. She's brilliant. And she's authored many books. Her speciality is government and race relations. So uh, uh, we're taking advantage. And she actually did a class for another congregation midweek. The class is brilliant. I wanted to share it with us. And this is a class on understanding race relations and race issues. Why would we do this at a midweek? Because it's necessary for us to be unified, is to listen to each other. This is a presentation of a dialogue. This is a part of a dialogue, and there'll be more. This is part of that. And the better we can all understand this, the better we'll be family, and we'll be able to truly love each other. So without further ado, I give you Jamila. And she's going to be teaching our class, and then Reese will come on afterwards with closing thoughts and announcements. So thank you, and let's listen to the class. To share with all of you tonight, it's it's so weird and different. <laughs> I'm in front of classrooms all the time, uh, and I'm with you guys all the time, but those things are usually completely separate. <laughs> so this will be um, interesting for me, but I, more so than that, I think... Um, there's so much happening right now in the world and it's so painful and to so many people it's confusing and I'm just grateful that we're taking this time to really talk about it and learn um, and really take it seriously and not bypass the, the opportunity to grow as a result of, of what's happening in the world right now. So I uh, called this grace and truth. I was thinking about calling it something super academic. I wouldn't give an academic talk usually and call it grace and truth. Um, but this isn't an academic talk, even though I'm going to draw on um, my, my knowledge from the academic world. And I even actually took some of the slides from, from different lectures that I give. 
uh, it's different and it's different because we're thinking about it as um, a group of believers together, right? So we have some different tools that we can bring uh, to bear on addressing these really uh, hard topics. And, and grace and truth are two of those tools. And I think I'll be honest that I'm going to focus more on the truth part today than I am on the grace part. But I wanted to at least start with grace and truth and with the understanding that even as we grapple with and try to understand uh, how to respond to difficult truths that are now ravaging literally our country and our world, um, we should still hold on to grace. And that's actually something that I struggle with a lot, which is why I highlight it, because it's, 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 it's as much for myself as it is for any other purpose. And, um, you know, I'm really like, I turn to this scripture in John 1.14 often and just think about um, how Jesus came full of grace and truth. And that is a, an inspiration to me. And I um, can very easily veer towards, you know, telling it like it is, telling the truth. And um, when, I, when I write up all my teaching statements, it's always like, well, you know, discomfort is a form of pedagogy and you tell the truth, you make people uncomfortable. And I'm very comfortable with that, but the grace part is crucial. So even as I get into some of the truths, I hope that we can um, remember that I'm also holding on to the grace here. So I just want to start with some basic things that, um, you know, we may already know to some of us, it may be like, I know all of this, but we may not. And I think that these basic truths can help to kind of frame any conversation or any thinking that we might want to do about the topic of race, right? Which is really what is underlying uh, the, the uprisings and the, the crisis unfolding in our country right now. So what is race? Uh, we may think that we know what it is because it's the kind of thing where you know it when you see it. Uh, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Race, race is a social classification system. And I want to say, I promise, this is the only slide that will have a whole bunch of words. Everything after this won't. Um, but it's a social classification system, and it's used to distinguish groups. We know that. It's, it's one of the first things maybe we notice about somebody when we encounter them. Now, contemporarily, it's largely based on phenotype, right? So you look at me and you know I'm Black. Why? Because my skin is dark and, you know, my hair is a different texture and there are kind of phenotypical characteristics that indicate it. But it's interesting to note that the criteria for determining race has varied over time, right? Even in this country. So there are Supreme Court cases uh, where the Supreme Court treats somebody who speaks a different language, uh, who may be who at the, at the time from an Eastern European country or some part of the world that wasn't considered a part of the American polity, um, as though they're a different race before the law, even though they're phenotypically white. Similarly with religion, there's a really well-known Supreme Court case where uh, there is um, a Muslim man who feels that he should be um, have the benefits of, of at, the, at that time in the country, the benefits of whiteness, and um, the court decides that on account of being Muslim, he wasn't in fact white. So we think about race as being solely phenotypical, but it's actually been a, a variety of different things over time, which really points to the fact that it's a historical and a social construct. It, it didn't exist before the 16th century. If you went back then, it's not that there weren't uh, different hierarchies that determine different forms of uh, difference and domination, but race, as we think about it and know it now, wouldn't have meant really anything to anyone before then. 
And what I want to, what I say this for is to underscore that race doesn't have any biological basis. You can't actually genetically distinguish between racial groups. If you were to take my DNA and you were to take, you know, JC Smith's DNA and you were a geneticist and you, you analyzed our DNA, you probably wouldn't be able to tell uh, what the racial differences between us were, notwithstanding all of those DNA tests that are advertised on TV that'll show you your entire background and ancestry. Um, you cannot determinatively identify someone's race as we understand or think about that concept just based on their DNA. Race doesn't actually have a biological basis. And there are more genetic differences within racial groups than there are between them. So 85% of all human, human genetic variation is actually within racial groups. And so, you know, race is something that we think of as this big dividing line between people. Um, but it, it is, and it is a dividing line, but it's not because it's genetic or because it's biological. And it's important to say that like, yes, racial categories sometimes correlate with biological traits, right? Like skin color or hair texture. Most of the times, the vast majority of the times, that's just superficial. Um, and even when it's more than superficial, like there are particular diseases that certain pop group, population groups are more likely to get, it's never deterministic. It's never like this only happens to people who are Black, this only happens to people who are white. And that's really important uh, because there are actually a lot of stereotypes. It's actually quite common for people to have stereotypes that there are real biological differences between racial groups. And then we can use those as a basis for explaining why people seem to behave differently or why they seem to have different life outcomes. And it's not the reason, right? Uh, so does that mean we can be like, oh, there is no race. It's just a social construct. It's just the human race. I don't see color, right? And these are a lot of the kinds of things that we can, uh, or that, that people can say or think in a, in a very well-meaning way. Um, but that is misguided too, because there is race. It's not a biological construct, um, but it is a social fact. It's a social fact because it, it determines what happens to us in life, in reality, right? This hasn't always been true in the same way it is true now in contemporary American life. But in the United States, it's been true uh, since even before we were the United States, right? So race is a social fact. So we can't just say, oh, race isn't real. It doesn't have a biological basis. I'll just ignore it. And how do we know it's a social fact? Because well, we see it in, in, in different outcomes in people's lives, right? If we take, for example, poverty, racial differences in rates of poverty persist. And we could go way back before 1989, we could take this graph back to the 1960s, which is about the time that we had this kind of data. Um, and we'll see differences that persist. They ebb and flow, right? The, the, the kind of extent of these gaps is changing over time. And you might say, oh, this looks like things are getting better. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that the differences persist. And then depending on the metric you look at, uh, the differences are growing. So if we switch from thinking about the, the kind of one end of the spectrum poverty and we go to the other end of the spectrum wealth, then we can see over time, this has actually gotten worse, right? So the most recent data that we have from 2016 shows that on average, white families have seven times as much wealth as black families, right? And there's also a gap between white and Hispanic families. So race is a fact. It is expressed in outcomes in people's lives, right? And it shapes life 
trajectories. If we think about something like imprisonment, your likelihood of being imprisoned at some time in your life course is going to be dramatically different based on your race. If you're a Black man, you have a one in three chance at some point in your lifetime of being in, incarcerated. Uh, just think about three people you know, and imagine that was the, ch- the likelihood that one of those people, right? For, for, for Black people who have lots of family members and friends and people in their close social circles, um, this means that we're much more likely to, if we don't experience this ourselves, to know someone who has and to be living with the consequences of what this means, right? Um, and it's literally life and death. If we think about what we're, what's going on right now, we're in the middle of a global health pandemic. And in the United States, the consequences for Black Americans are dramatically different. The brunt of the burden of this virus is, is being borne by Black communities. And if you translate these numbers into lives lost, the most recent estimates suggest that 13,000 Black people would be alive today if they were being affected by COVID-19 at rates similar to those of white Americans, right? So it is literally life and death. And of course we know that because that is what is at the root of the uprisings that we're seeing happen throughout the country right now. What's at the root of it is that George Floyd, he died. And he died in a way that was very public and that was very heinous. And that many people are upset and angry about. And many people believe that the that the determinative factor in his death was the fact that he was Black, that something like that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for him being Black. Now, you might think, well, we don't know that. We don't know what the cop was thinking. We don't know what is in their hearts and minds. And that's all true. But what we do know um, is that this is not an isolated incident, right? Black men, on average, are two and a half times more likely to be killed by the police than white men in this country. And that's not just true for them. There's an increased likelihood for Black women, for Latino men, for American Indian men and women. People of color in this country are just more likely to die at the hands of the police. And one thing to point out, and I don't want to get too into the weeds right now, but one thing to point out, because I think it's really important, is that these differences persist even when we account for behavior, right? So we know things like Black black people and white people in America use drugs at, at about the same rate. But Black people are dramatically more likely to end up arrested and in prison for drug use, right? So it's tempting to think, well, what are, what are these people doing? Why is this happening to them? The police don't just go out and identify Black and brown people and murder them, right? Now, of course not. It's more complicated than that. But the answer isn't that there's something wrong with these people. There's something that they're doing that explains this behavior, right? And I'll talk about that just a little bit in a second. But I just want to emphasize that It's life and death. And that's why we keep talking about it so much, right? We might be at the point right now where we're like, oh my gosh, another midweek on this, or oh my gosh, another conversation about this. And every time you turn on the TV and it's just everything, why why is this so important? And part of the reason it's so important is because for so many people, it is literally life and death, right? But why does it matter so much? Why do we see these outcomes, right? There are a whole ton of reasons. I'm going to just put some up on the screen here. I cannot explain all of these reasons to you. I teach an entire semester course on race. And in that semester, across that semester, we talk about all of these things on the screen right here and more, right? Some of these things you might know. Oh, slavery. I know what that is. 
And you might think of it as historical, it's something in the past. Um, some of these things you might not know, right? You're like, what's Jim Crow? What's redlining? Um, and if you're interested in knowing, I'm happy to provide anyone with resources. But the fact of the matter is that these are, are parts of our social, economic, and political system that both historically and contemporarily have created significant disadvantages for people of color. And that is what explains differences in racial outcomes primarily. It's not about like, so you might think, oh, it's about culture. Maybe there's just, they, they don't work hard enough or they don't have the same morals or values or, oh, they, there are too many single parent homes and fathers aren't committed enough to their families. And there are actually a lot of stereotypical things that we hear, that we see in media and that we can easily believe about what makes Black and Latino people different and, and explains differences in outcomes. And most of these things, social science research has debunked, right? And these things that are on the slide right here are the things that research really overwhelmingly shows explain these outcomes. And these are about systems and processes and not about individual people making bad choices. Does that mean that people don't make bad choices? No. Does it mean that sometimes Black people don't make bad choices that explain bad outcomes in their life? Of course they do, right? But these aggregate patterns, these wide-scale disparities, those are not a product of just, well, I guess bad Black people make bad choices and have bad culture. They're not, right? Um, the fact of the matter is, though, that there are deep divides over how we view these things. And when you ask white Americans, for example, and Black Americans, to think about whether our Black people are treated less fairly in various areas of life, in dealing with the police, by the criminal justice system, et cetera, et cetera. There tend to be differences, and pretty substantial differences, depending on what area you look at, in opinions on these things. And those differences can divide us, right? If you think that this is not really a big deal, and, and I think that it is, uh, you might not hear me when I'm talking about my experience, when uh, this last one at the bottom, when seeking medical treatment, I won't get into it, but some of you I know I've told uh, my, my experience when Jace was born in the University of Chicago Hospital, a hospital that is embedded in a very poor Black community. Uh, and the doctors there are used to very low-income Black women who aren't well-educated coming in. And they treat, I mean, my experience there was horrific. It was just, I couldn't even get into it, but anyone who wants to know can ask Justin because he, he won't get as, as upset telling the story. But if I'm telling you about that, if I'm telling you about a doctor saying, a day after my son is born, we need to get you on birth control now. We don't want you coming back here in two months pregnant like you people do. And you don't actually think that's a, a significant part of my life experience. Maybe I'm, I took it personally. You know, I just had a baby. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe I was emotional. Maybe it was the hormones. Well, now there's a divide between us because this is something that is real in my life, but that I don't necessarily feel you hear. And so these divides are a problem, especially um, in, in a family of believers, Right. And how do we get past the divides and actually deal with the truths of racial inequality? I certainly don't have the, the answers. Um, but I will say, Justin gave me this idea when we were talking about what does it mean to respond to the truth? And he said, oh, it just makes me think about Nathan and David. And I won't read this, but 
all the way through, but I love it because Nathan starts off with lots of grace, nice and gentle. He uses a story. I do this when I'm teaching all the time. I, when I read this, I'm like, this is pedagogy. This is how you teach people, right? I'll tell my, my students personal stories uh, or stories that from growing up. I'll ease them into thinking about hard truths, right? That people who don't look like you actually get treated dramatically differently than you do. And most of us don't necessarily know that unless we've experienced it. And we may not even believe it. It may sound like victim mentality or whining or complaining. And so Nathan kind of eases David into this hard truth. And then David gets irate about it. And then Nathan says, you are the man. This is you, right? And so the point here isn't for me to say, you are the man, you are all racist, right? But the point is to say, we're all living in a society that is characterized by these deep divisions. And so we're implicated. And certainly we're called to respond, right? Even if you're like, but I've never said a racist word in my life and I've never thought a racist thing in my life. Um, you're still part of this community, part of this society, part of this system. And I, I, would, I would say that we're still called to respond. It doesn't mean that everyone will respond in the same way, right? It doesn't mean like you're called, you got to go get out there on the street, do what I'm doing, right? But it means in some level, we have to contend with the truths of racial discrimination in our society, is what I think, at least. So I think in a couple ways, and I'm rounding out here, I promise. First about personal responses, if we think about response. Um, and maybe I'll start with the do's, which is, what do I do once I realize, wow, this is something that's important. This is something that is affecting people. Maybe I know a lot about it. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I think I know, but I really don't. Listening is important no matter which of those categories you're in. And it's a first step, right? It's part of what we're all doing right now. Uh, learning is another. If you're like, wow, I never heard of any of these things that Jamila talked about tonight. Well, that suggests there's some room for learning. Or if you're like, some of these things, I really don't know where they, why, what they are, why they would matter. It means that there's room there for understanding the world better. And in that way, understanding each other better and being able to uh, just to learn and love more. Um, and then I would say leaning into discomfort. You know, a lot of times when I'm teaching about race in my classes, you know, it's Cornell. <laughs> Most of the students are white. Most of them are pretty well wealthy and just have come from a completely different background than me and get very uncomfortable with me being the person in front of the classroom telling them about race. I'm telling them that racism is real. Some of them are like, of course she thinks so. She's just, you know... She has that victim mentality. I've had students write things like that in my course evaluations, even though I'm literally showing them empirical studies, right? Um, but at the root of that is that they are uncomfortable. And I guess I would just say lean into discomfort uh, because when you push past it at the other side um, is often knowledge that can help you to grow. Um, and then of course, love, because that's important over all of this. Quickly, the don'ts. These are don'ts. I say don't. I'm not telling anyone to do or not to do anything, actually, because that I don't think that's my place. This is how I think about do's and don'ts for myself. And the don'ts are things that tend to rile me or hurt me when I'm talking to people and they respond in this way. One is deflect, right? Deflect is like, well, what about abortion and all of those Black people who are aborting their babies? Or what about Black-on-Black -black crime, right? It's like, 
we can talk about those if you want to talk about those, but we were actually having a conversation about racism. And when you bring up something tangential, it feels like an end run around that conversation, right? It's deflection, distraction, but, but they're destroying property. What about the property destruction? And it's, I get it. I'm not saying, uh, you know, let's just go and wreak all havoc. But for so many people, not a word, not a word when Black people were being killed. And then as soon as a storefront is broken, there's indignation. What that feels like to me is hurtful. Because it, it only mattered when it felt like it was something real to you, right? And, and I'm not judging that that's what's in anyone's heart. But I'm saying that's how it feels to me right? The other one is diminishing. Oh, everybody suffers. All groups have suffered. Black people, white people, men, women, it happens everywhere all the time. So we don't have to pay that much attention to your suffering that's really happening right now because everybody suffers. Well, that feels like you're diminishing something that's very real for me. I've been pulled over by the police five times in the last few years. Most of you probably don't know that because I don't talk to many people about it because I don't want people to say, oh, it's no big deal. They probably were just routine stops. Really? Because I'm afraid every time for my life. And if you don't feel that way and you diminish it, it makes it hard for me to want to share that and for me to be able to be real with you, you know? And then demand. Well, fine. Prove it to me. Show me all the evidence. Tell me about every little traumatic experience you've had. And maybe you can win me over. Maybe. Maybe not. But maybe. Try me. Relive all of your trauma, and then we'll see. Now, of course, that's not what people intend, I would imagine, most of the time. And there's grace, which means benefit of the doubt. But this is how it feels when there's deflection and distraction and diminishment and demand. It feels hurtful, right? So those are things that can be avoided for more productive conversation. And this is the last slide, I promise. Besides just those individual responses that are about our interpersonal interactions and, and relationships, there are also general things that it's okay for us to think about, right? Um, it's okay for us to pay attention to what's happening in the world and try to understand where we might fit in as part of the problem. It's okay for us to speak up if you hear family members or coworkers or friends say things that you know are part of the problem. It's really tempting, I bet, just to not say anything, um, but it's okay and, and preferable to speak up. And to look beyond politics, it might be like, oh, these sound like things a Democrat would say. Oh, I bet she's a Democrat. It is not about that. Whether you like Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever, you're a liberal, conservative, this goes beyond that. And, and when we look beyond that, we can pull ourselves out of the divisions that often stop us from being able to understand each other. Some specific practicals that I'll end with, um, and this is part of the pay attention piece. You know, do we know things like who our local district attorney is? These people have immense power over what happens, for example, when there's police misconduct, or over all kinds of decisions that shape things like that, that chart I showed you about mass incarceration, right? And they're usually elected in local elections uh, that often are nonpartisan. So you don't have to like not vote for whoever your party candidate is. And you could still think about, wow, maybe I should pay attention to whether the DA cares about racial justice, right? 
Same thing with your local elected officials. Sheriffs are actually elected in most places. Your local sheriff is elected. And you can look at that person's record and be like, wow, they have never prosecuted or arrested someone for X kind of crime that we know is contributing to this problem of racial injustice. Things like your local school board. Schools tend to be places that are deeply segregated. And by paying attention to who's on the board and what their values are and whether they care about equality, we can actually maybe change some things. Even relevant legislation. I don't know who's ever heard of Repeal 58. This is a, a piece of legislation that is being hotly contested in, in New York State right now. It has been for about the last year. 50A says, we don't really have to tell the public anything about police officers, their record, uh, when they do things wrong and there are complaints about them, what the responses to those complaints are, whether they're disciplined. They can operate under a cloak of secrecy. Now, I'm not targeting police and saying they're the problem because I actually think it's, it's much bigger than that. But if you believe, actually, I think transparency and accountability make more sense in this context. That's something that you can easily send a two-line email to your elected representative about. Now, you may say, this is not really my thing. I'm not into this stuff. And that's fine. Because there's all kinds of ways that we can look around us and think about how to engage. I'll end with this. Did anyone know that Syracuse was named one of the worst cities for Black Americans to live in? Syracuse is one of the top 10 worst cities for Black people to live in. I think it's, it has the, um, the, the dubious distinction of being number eight. Why? If, if we live here, do we know how other people who live here are experiencing this place and why? And what we can do, right? There are all sorts of opportunities to do something, right? Um, and they don't have to be these practicals. They can be... You know, someone reached out to me from a program in Syracuse that was about tutoring children whose parents had been incarcerated to ask me for uh, advice about something around the program. There are so many things like that that are direct ways to engage with communities that have been at the losing end of these injustices. Um, and there are just so many options for how we can respond. And all of them involve love, loving each other here in this fellowship and loving beyond ourselves in, the, in a world uh, that is suffering because of these injustices. Good evening. I hope you are inspired, encouraged, as well as challenged by tonight's video and midweek. We want to learn and grow to become more and more like Jesus. As we head into our discussion groups, here are two questions to consider in these groups. Number one is what have I learned from tonight's lesson? What have I learned from tonight's lesson? Let's look and examine our own hearts about what was discussed tonight. And secondly, what do we as a group or church need to learn from tonight's lesson? What do we as a group and church need to learn from tonight's lesson? Have some great discussion groups tonight. You've just listened to the Metro LA podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit MetroLARegion.com 